Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple. And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading from his word this morning. You may be seated. Father, I thank you so much that you are the giver of wisdom. Uh, you say through James in the book of James that if anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask. And so we ask. Proverbs says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We, we do fear you. You are the creator who made the heavens and the earth and all judgment is yours. And by your grace... You have sent Jesus to die on the cross to pay for our sins and raised him to new life, raised him to life on the third day. And then you do that in us where we hear the message of the gospel. We are convicted of our sins. We know we need a savior and we cry out for salvation. And in that faith, you give us new life. Steve is thinking about going to Kazakhstan. Um, because he loves you, because he's your child, because he wants to make Christ known. And so, Lord, I ask that you'd give him wisdom in that. There are other places that he could go for the same purpose. He does have some health issues. And I just ask, Father, that you, the giver of wisdom, will give him wisdom should he go on this trip in August or not. And, uh, and then give him peace in what that decision is. And for the others that are going on that trip, I ask, Lord, that you would open a door for the gospel, that Christ would be made, na- made known, and that souls would be saved through that missions trip. Father, for us, as we go through this passage, this wonderful passage in John 8, I ask, Lord, that you would give us all wisdom to hear from you through the scriptures. Father, please uh, help me to remember the things most important to say and the thing's not important, let them go away. And I ask more than, more than what I say, that the people here would hear from you, that, they, that your spirit would speak to them, that each of us would leave um, overwhelmed with your grace, with your love, and where we have some idea of how to live that out before other people who don't know you. And Lord, I ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so... We're going through a series in the book of John. Um, Pastor Bob is, uh, for those of you visiting, I am not our normal uh, pastor teacher. Bob Corbin is our pastor. He's on a, a trip to Pennsylvania. In fact, he's driving home today. Um, but we started a, pa- a series in the Gospel of John back in the beginning of March, and Chuck taught the overview to it, the introduction to it. And most of the messages since then, not quite all, but most of them Bob has taught, The theme is that the Lamb of God is the Son of God. God came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And in this um, 
diagram that Bob came up with, he's trying to link together two thoughts that are central through the book of John. The first is what I just said, the deity of Jesus, the God in the flesh becomes the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. But that's in order or has a result of unity in the church that we may be one so that the world can come to know Christ. And thus the arrow back up as the church is unified, it helps others to take notice and then through the Spirit working in them come to understand the deity of Christ and they too receive eternal life. So that's kind of our, our theme chart of the two, twofold purpose of the Gospel of John. So today we're in John 8, and I had Chuck back up and read because I wanted just you to get the context of it. Uh, the setting of this starts with the religious leaders in chapter 7. And in fact, there's a verse back all the way to verse 32 that I didn't have Chuck read. Actually, chapter 7, verse 31 Many of the multitude believed in him, believed in Jesus. And they were saying, when the Christ shall come, he will not perform more signs than those which this man has, will he? And the Pharisees hear this. They hear what the crowd's talking about. Some are believing, some are not believing. I didn't read the verse about the not believing. That was in verse, uh, uh, well, actually, that was even further up in like verse 27. But in verse 32, after hearing this, the Pharisees heard the multitude muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to seize him. So think their version of police officers, temple security people. And they send them to seize Jesus. Bob taught last week on the part that comes from there down to verse 40 about Jesus crying out uh, that he... um, Uh, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being shall flow rivers of living water. Well, these officers had come to the temple to arrest Jesus. And they heard his teaching. And they came back without arresting him. And when the Pharisees in verse 45, uh, the officers therefore came to the chief priests and Pharisees. And so the Pharisees, and the chief priests said to them, why did you not bring him? We sent you to arrest him. You've come back empty-handed. What's going on? The officers say in verse 46, Never did a man speak the way this man speaks. He's speaking with authority. He's saying things they've never heard a teacher of, of Israel say before. We, in past messages, we've talked about him proclaiming his deity. In John 5, it comes out strong. In John 6, it comes out. Um... And so as we go into chapter 8, the religious leaders are frustrated. They have sent officers to arrest him who have come back empty-handed, wowed by, what, by the words of Christ. And so if you put themselves in their shoes, they're still scheming. They're trying to figure out how we're going to get this guy. What are we going to do about this? So they're frustrated. Verse, um, verse 1 of chapter 8 tells us that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. It doesn't tell us what he did there. I'm just going to throw out that most likely he went there for prayer. We have many examples through the Gospels of Jesus seeking solitude to pray where he will go uh, up a mountain at night. Uh, Luke tells us that the Garden of Gethsemane was actually on the Mount of Olives, and we know he went there to pray many times. Um, In the last week when we are told about the Garden of Gethsemane, he gets betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane by Judas Iscariot. Um, several of the gospel writers talk about how it was a place well-known to Judas because they went there often. So he probably went there to pray. Doesn't say that. Maybe just spent the night out in the open there. Um, But then the rest of what he's doing is covered in verse 2 as we lead into this, teaching the people in the temple. And verse 2 lays it out for us. He came early in the morning, early in the morning, into the temple, People were coming to him because they had been hearing him teaching in the temple. And he sat down and started teaching them. Now, when verse 3 comes in and the Pharisees bring the... the, I'm I'm probably going to lapse into saying Pharisees. I want to point out it's the scribes and Pharisees. I'll talk more about them in a minute. When they bring the woman caught in adultery, we don't actually know is that still early in the morning or not. Early in the morning is when he came into the temple. It's probably in the morning. He's still teaching, and it could still be early in the morning. Um, But the last thing 
uh, so now going into the situation, as we move into to verse 3, the scribes and Pharisees, they bring the woman who's caught in adultery. And I have a typo there. That's in verse 3. The scribes and Pharisees are two of the main groups that are here in this scene. And they represent two of the main groups in, in the Jewish society who most care about the Old Testament law. And think for a moment about it. They have slightly different motivations, probably. The scribes are the ones who are, right, making copies of it. They are scribing the law. So so that they have scrolls that are out in, the, in all of their... Um, oh, my brain walked away. The word, you guys know, the word start synagogue, synagogue. In their synagogues out in, out in the towns and villages, they have scrolls. They have copies of the scripture. It's the scribes who are making those, and those things wear out over time. So the scribes, their job was to make copies of the Old Testament law, the prophets, all of the what we call the books of the Old Testament. So they care greatly about it. And, and to give them credit, they want to, uh, to write it accurately. They later scribes after Jesus, as we come into like the the Middle Ages, the Dark Ages and up till the 10th and 11th century, we know that they had practices that were just tedious where they would count the words on the page. They would count the lines on the page. They would count the total words on the page. I mean, words in a line, lines on a page, words in the page. And they had checks and balances to make sure they didn't leave anything out, that they didn't get things wrong. Now, over thousands of years, there were some mistakes that happened from scribes, but they tried very hard not to make them. And to give you an example, uh, just this has not a lot to do with the message, but an example of, of the accuracy of the fidelity of the scribes through generations of copies of the Old Testament, one of the criticisms of Christians in the Middle Ages by skeptics well, actually, no, it wasn't just Middle Ages. It comes up into modern times, uh, at, let's say 1900. We had, had a lot of uh, critics pop up after the Renaissance going into like 1700s, 1800s, critics of the New Testament. And one of the criticisms was that when we claim that Jesus fulfilled lots of prophecies, well, a lot of those are in Isaiah, and, and the critics would say, well, the most recent copy we have of those writings is from the 10th century, which was true at the time. The most recent complete Old Testament um, Hebrew Bible dates to the 10th century where the Masoretic, uh, Masoretic priests, scribes, they were the ones who were copying it then. And so you're looking at 1,700 years back to Isaiah. That's a long time. And as people study ancient manuscripts... That's a lot of time for error to come in. So that was a criticism. How do you actually know that what Isaiah wrote was before Christ? Maybe he wrote it after Christ. And, you know, people made us up and wrote things that were promises for Jesus to fulfill. That was a criticism of Christians and of taking the New Testament at face value in 1900, not too long ago. Well, in the 1940s, they found the Dead Sea Scrolls which contained two, almost one complete copy and one almost complete copy of the book of Isaiah. And it is word for word identical with the exception of a few very minor, there's like, uh, you know, count them on your finger where there's like a letter difference. And, and that was, so Dead Sea Scrolls were written around 100 to 200 B.C., um, older than 100 B.C., and they found them in the 1940s, and so they're matching that up to this Hebrew Bible that dates from the 10th century. So you've got 1,100 years minimum between what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, that copy of Isaiah, to the copy of Isaiah that's in that Hebrew Bible. And it was identical. So that gives huge... Number one, it showed that those promises of Isaiah were written before Christ fulfilled them. Number two, it backs the date of that oldest manuscript up to only about 500 to six years, 600 years from when Isaiah actually wrote it. And number three, which is powerful, is that it hadn't changed. So these guys are the guys who do that in Jesus' day, the scribes. Got to give them some credit. 
they cared about the Old Testament and about rendering it faithfully. Now, the Pharisees, you know a lot about Pharisees. I'm not going to talk as much about them as I did about scribes. I went on a tangent about the book of Isaiah, sorry. Uh, but the Pharisees, they were the ones in, in Jesus' day of the, of the various religious groups that were probably the most like us, which could be a separate thing for us to talk about. But what I mean by that is they took the Old Testament writings as literal. They believed in a resurrection. They believed in a life after this one. The Sadducees, as an opposing group, accepted much of the Old Testament, but they did not accept the supernatural. They would be like many non-Christians of our world today who think when they die, they're just going in the ground. That's why they get in a discussion with Jesus trying to trap him or trick him in regard to that story that you can read in, uh, in other Gospels where the man... Uh, married a woman and then died, and she married all the brothers, and they think they got him there. Uh, that's where they're coming from. They don't believe in eternal life or resurrection. But the Pharisees did. And, and so the Pharisees are sticklers for the law. They want to see the law enforced. They want to see people live according to the law, but they also want to see them punished when they break the law. The other who here that's, that's featured is this woman caught in adultery. The scripture says they set her in the midst in front of Jesus, the scribes, the Pharisees, all the people Jesus was teaching there in the temple. So I just want to pause here for a moment. It's worth us thinking a little about what she's likely thinking and feeling in that situation. Now, you may not have had a problem with adultery, but I bet you every one of us here has at some point in our life been caught in something we regretted having done. The gig was up. We were exposed. You'd done something wrong. And somebody else knows it. You may have to go all the way back to your childhood when your parents caught you stealing a cookie or telling a lie. But for most of us, there's probably something as an adult you can go back to. Um, so I'm thinking she's probably tremendously embarrassed by this. She's hauled out right in the middle of everybody. She's probably ashamed. Now, ashamed depends on if she thought it was actually a sin. She might not have, in which case she might not have been ashamed. But a lot of times we are believe that something is wrong, and yet we choose to do it. So then when the Holy Spirit convicts us in private, or if we're found out in public, we tend to be ashamed of it. Just others may not know your shame if it's not in public. She's, so she's probably embarrassed. She's probably ashamed. She may be angry. The man she was involved in didn't get hauled in. She may be legitimately angry. What about the other guy? How come he isn't hauled in with me? I'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. So she might be angry. Um, she's almost certainly fearful, afraid of what's going to happen to her. Because according to the law, she should be stoned. And these guys who care about the law have intervened in her life and yanked her into the temple before this holy man, Jesus. So that's kind of the who's of what's going on here. I want to talk for a minute about this word caught. In um, chapter 8, verse 3, it says the woman was caught in adultery. Most translations use caught. You might have something... Uh, different in there. It's the Greek word katalambano. And I want to talk for a minute about this because I, I actually, there are four words in our text today in uh, verses 1 through 11 that start with this prefix kata. Kata is its own word. It's a preposition. I have that down at the bottom of the screen with a lot of meanings. And I just listed the A ones until I was about out of space. It goes into other letters of our alphabet with a lot of different uh, possible meanings. Uh, but the reason I want to mention it is because Cotalambano is the first of the four words. The fourth one is the only other one I'm really going to talk about near the end of the message. But there's four of them in here. And Lombano means to take or to receive. That's a two-way thing. If someone's offering something and you take it, you also receive it, right? So you could it shows up either way in English where that occurs in um, Lombano occurs in the New Testament. And Bob has talked about Lombano before. 
Um, it has seemed to me, looking, studying this on my own here, that, it, that kata, when it's being connected with another word, tends to intensify that other word. And so I actually texted Bob and said, what's up with kata? And we had a back and forth where he, I wanted to make sure I was telling you the right thing. And, and he said, yeah, he said that, um, that the predominant meanings are according to, against, or down. And when it's in a hostile type situation, we should think against. So whatever's the original word, you stick kata on it, think adversary, against, tied in with whatever that meaning is, and you have a heightened form of what it really means. So with kata labano, there, that's what I just said about the compound words, it really means to lay hold of aggressively, to seize, and thus it's rendered in most English translations as caught. Um, now, on to take... Now, I'm apart from Greek now. I'm just going to talk about English. To take, when I hear the word take, it makes me think of when Gail and I lived in Australia. Uh, we had been there just a few months. This was in the 90s. And, and you may be familiar with this. This was the first time I ever heard it. Uh, there was a news account about a guy who was out a uh, half mile off the coast in a boat, and, uh, and his motor died, and so he tried to swim to shore. And he got taken by a shark. And that is the common way the Australians talk about that. If someone gets eaten by a shark, they are taken. That's how it, they talk about it. That's how it shows up in reports. And that would be Lamano if we're talking about Greek. But when I heard that, and throughout the time we were there, when I'd hear him talk about somebody was taken with a shark, and by the way, I looked it up yesterday. Um, the odds of being eaten by a shark in the U.S., this is in the U.S., where did I put this? The odds of being eaten by a shark are 1 in 264.1 million. And that assumes you go in the water, okay? You got much better odds if you, much better, I mean, much less odds if you'd stay out of the water. But 1 in 264.1 million. But for comparison, when we were in Australia, I remember being told that it's 50 times more likely that you would be eaten by a shark in Australia, in the waters of Australia, than anywhere else in the world. Well, I didn't find that on the internet yesterday, but what I did find was that the odds of being killed by a shark in the coast of Western Australia, out by Perth and, and Fremantle, out, out that way, on the Indian Ocean, apparently that's the most dangerous place. It is one in 40,000. And if you do the math between 264.1 million and 40,000, that's 6,602 times more likely to be killed by a shark than in the waters of the U.S. Now, I tell you that just because it came up a lot while we were living in Australia, and Gail may not remember any of this. I didn't talk to her about this yesterday. She wants me to move on. She doesn't like it when I tell this sort of stuff. <laughs> but, but I'm telling you because it's interesting. Uh, so I would hear a lot that someone was taken by a shark. And, and, and I'm just, I'm here to tell you, I didn't think that gave justice to us because what's happening is the shark is grab, attacking the person, grabbing them, hauling them underwater, swallowing them, eating them, killing them. There's much stronger words in English I would use. It basically is like a euphemism in Australia where you use a word that makes things seem tame, taken by a shark. Well, when we come back to the Greek, this woman is not just taken in adultery by the scribes and Pharisees, she is caught. And I, scripture doesn't say it, but I think it's a fair hunch to read between the lines that they were looking for someone. They wanted to have something to haul, somebody in some gross sin that they could haul in front of Jesus. So she was probably even trapped, you know. So you can think about how that might happen, but they caught her. They caught her in the very act, no denying it, and then hauled her to the temple. So, more on the situation, moving into verse 4 and 5. So, they come to Jesus. They say, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now, Moses in the law commanded us that, she sh that such should be stoned. What do you say? So, they're teeing this up for him. Um, so, the what in this situation is adultery and... I just want to make clear, I'm going to show you some Old Testament verses on this. But adultery is when someone has sexual relations with someone they're not married to, and one of the two of them is married to somebody else. 
you don't have to actually be married to commit adultery. If you have relations with someone who is married, but they're not married to you, you are an adulterer. Certainly, if you are married and you do that with somebody else, you're an adulterer. Um, you're going to see that as we go through some passages. So the, the ones I'm going through, they are on the note sheet if you want a complete list. Uh, the actual command from God is first in the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery, Exodus 20, verse 14. And it also shows up when Moses, before the people, before he dies and the people go into the promised land, he repeats a lot of the history that's happened, including the Ten Commandments, and that's in Deuteronomy 5. So that's the command. The first passage that talks about the punishment is in Leviticus 20. And that's in a list of a bunch of what Scripture says are abominations to the Lord. And it says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now, first thing I want you to notice is when I said adultery, I said, who who is an adulterer or an adulteress? You don't actually have to be married to be an adulterer. This verse is bearing that out. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife. So the woman was married to someone. She's an adulteress. She had relations with someone who's not her husband. It doesn't tell us the marital status of the man. And the reason is because that doesn't matter. He had relations with someone that is not his wife. He's an adulterer, whether he was married or not. Same would apply to a woman. So they're both to be put to death, is what that says. Um, Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, is the other one that's explicit in general, like how that Leviticus 21 was. If a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman. You shall put away the evil from Israel. So, um, both of them shall die. Now, the other passages that relate to this, I'm not going to go into them at length. I put them here where you can go look at them. Numbers 5, 11 through 31 is what we call the adultery test. This is when a jealous man accuses his wife. This is not in a case where he has evidence. If he had evidence and witnesses, he could take her into the more normal judicial procedure that had to do with adultery. This is when he doesn't have evidence and he's just upset, jealous of his wife. And when you read that, it can come across very puzzling. They do this thing where they make bitter water and she has to drink it. And then you're watching for two physical attributes to occur. I'll leave it for you to go read that. Um, But it has to do with, I believe, protecting the woman, a jealous man can make allegations anytime. And when I read this passage and think about it and then review at the end, my conclusion is that God set up something where she won't be found guilty of adultery by this test unless God supernaturally intervenes. The drinking of the bitter water doesn't physically cause the two reactions that are spelled out there. So God would have to supernaturally intervene and affect her body for her to be found guilty of this. And of course, God would only do that if she was guilty of it. So uh, it really is a thing meant to resolve what could well be false, misplaced jealousy on the part of the man and protect the woman. In Deuteronomy 22, I had mentioned Deuteronomy 22 already. From 13 to 29, it's a bunch of stuff about sexual sin that God doesn't like. And in the middle of it is this verse 22 that was general about adultery. The first part of it, 13 through 21, has to do with a newly married husband who, after being with his wife, suddenly doesn't like her anymore. And and it seems clearly aimed at like the first week or two of marriage, and he may legitimately have cause to accuse her of having cheated on him before they married, not being a virgin when they married. Uh, But he could just be looking to make something up and get out of the marriage. And so that passage covers that and has protections built in for the woman that have to do with responsibilities of her parents in order to maintain her innocence. I'll leave that for you to read it. Uh, but, But my point there is I think, again, the woman in large measure is being protected by what God put in place there 
from a husband who suddenly no longer wants to be married to her and, and may, without cause, be trying to make something up in order to get rid of her. Um, then the latter part of 22 is about situations involving a virgin. There are three different scenarios there. I'll leave it for you to go read it. But in all of those cases, the man is always put to death. The third of the three cases involving a, a virgin is where neither one of them were, were engaged to anybody, and then he's got to marry her, and he's not allowed to ever divorce her. So they don't get put to death in that case, but they have to, they have to do what God would have intended anyway. If they want to have sexual relations, they should have gotten married first. Um, but throughout all of these passages, all of them that I showed you, the law is saying that the man always is put to death. When, when you know who the man is. Several of those cases involved allegations or situations where you don't know where the, who the man is. But when you know who the man is, he's punished. He's condemned. So this was true for both adultery and, by the way, for premarital sex, except that one case that I mentioned where they're not engaged and then they have to get married. And I actually think what that boils down to is that the religious leaders of Israel would have said to the man, okay, you can marry her or it's the stones. Your choice. Um, So that's what the law says. When they come to him, they just say, Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But there's more to it. So I think we're seeing here hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees because there are really two reasons. One, covered by these scriptures, they didn't bring the man. If they caught her in the very act, then they know who the man was. They didn't bring him, so that's hypocrisy. The other thing that is hypocrisy here is, I was going to say extra biblical, but that's not true because we actually have a verse on it. They weren't allowed to execute without Roman approval. We see this when Jesus is on trial over in John 18, 31. Pilate says, you take him and judge him according to your law. The Jews said to him, it's not lawful for us to put anyone to death. That was true. They didn't mean not lawful by their law. They meant by the Roman law. Because the Romans, in 6 AD, when Palestine became a Roman province, the Jews lost the right to prescribe capital punishment. Now, they still had a way to do it, but they had to get the uh, proconsul's approval, which was Pilate at the time of Jesus' trial. And, and that's why they're taking him to Pilate, because they, they want him dead. But they're not, by Roman law, allowed to do that. So... Back in this passage in chapter 8, when they bring this woman to Jesus, the why is they want to test him. They want to accuse him. But you now see some of what's going on there because uh, they weren't allowed to just go ahead and stone her because of the Roman rule over them. So they said this to test him. They might might have something of which to accuse him. Um, Let me go back. I didn't know if I had anything else there. So you see two ways that this trap could be sprung. If he says stoner, then he's upholding the law, and they're probably going to gladly join in because I think they want to stoner. But she's not really the point. The point is trying to trap Jesus. If he says stoner and they stoner to death, then when the Romans are upset, they point at Jesus. He tells us to do it. They get him in trouble with the Romans. If he says don't stoner, Now he's in trouble. They are looking for a way to accuse him. Now they've got something good. If we think about what's happened up to them, up to this point, through our teaching, Bob and mine, through the book of John, but also things you know from the other Gospels, the main point of contention up to this point, this is, we're like, um, we're like a year to a year and a half into Jesus's ministry at this point in John. There's still probably at least a year and a half to go before we get to the crucifixion. The big issue has been what he does on the Sabbath. He's healed several people on the Sabbath. We saw that in John 5, where he healed the man at the Pool of Bethesda. And they don't like that, that he's healing on the Sabbath. He told the man at the Pool of Bethesda to pick up his, uh, his, his mat and carry it with him. Why? Because he wasn't going to be coming back there. He wasn't going to spend another night there. Well, they don't like that. That's doing work on the Sabbath. Um, the... the I don't know that it's happened yet at this point. I think it probably has over in Mark and Luke. But when uh, Jesus' disciples are picking the grain as they walk through the field and eating it on a Sabbath, 
And the Pharisees come and they question Jesus about that. And that's the passage where he says that Sabbath was not created for man. Uh, No, the man was not created for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was created for man. And then he says that the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's probably happened by now, but even if it hasn't, that's still on the the things that are happening in regard to the Sabbath are what are infuriating them the most in regard to what they might could catch him on with the law. But their problem is, number one, their own guards won't go arrest him because of the wonderful things he's saying. And number two, the laws that he's breaking are their laws, not God's laws. The rabbis had come up with 600 and some different laws to explain the laws in the Bible. So like, for instance, you shall not work on the Sabbath. Well, what does work mean? They had a bunch of laws about that. It wasn't God's law that Jesus had broken in any fashion, in any of the things that happened on the Sabbath, but some of their rabbinical rabbinical laws and rulings. That's what he had violated. Well, here they would have something that would clearly be a law of God being violated if he said, don't stone her. So that's the trap that they're trying to spring. So now we get to the solution. So I... This is interesting. I'm just going to put all four of these up here real quick. So he starts writing on the ground. And what's going through their heads? He's not giving them an answer. So it says in verse 7 that they persisted in asking. So he stands up and he says to them, He is without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Then he stoops back down and he starts writing on the ground again. And then they all walk away, one by one. Scripture says the oldest first. So we don't know what he wrote on the ground. I I do want to say, though, we know he's not just doodling or drawing. There are some people who propose that. He's stalling for time while he tries to think of how to get out of the trap, as if God in the flesh needs to work hard at figuring that out. Um, but the word for wrote here, where are we? Verse 6, Jesus stooped down with his finger, wrote on the ground, and then again in verse 8, wrote on the ground. That Greek word for wrote or for write is the So in the Old Testament, when God wrote the Ten Commandments, the Scripture says the finger of God wrote them on the two stone tablets for Moses. Well, that's in Hebrew. But the Greek, the Septuagint, which was the Jews' Greek translation of the Hebrew, this is the word that's there. So in the Septuagint, that Greek word for the finger of God wrote those Ten Commandments on the two two stone tablets, that's this word. It means writing words, something sensible. So he wasn't doodling, he wasn't drawing. He was writing words in the ground. We know that um, just from the word. But we don't know what he's writing. We can conjecture, but we need to be careful not to say any of our conjecture is what really happened because we don't know. Scripture doesn't tell us. When I speculate about it, I can easily think of at least four categories of things. The one that I've many times heard preachers talk about is that he's writing different sins down. Um, You know, lying, stealing, dishonoring your parents, taking the Lord's name in vain, stuff like that. And so as they... They're all standing right here. They almost surely can see what he's writing. I think they probably came in even closer when it says they persisted in asking him because he wasn't giving them an answer. They can see what he's writing. Um, So maybe it's he's writing different sins. And as they hear what he says, they start to put the pieces together. They're convicted that I'm not without sin, and they leave. The oldest being the wisest, they leave first. The second thing that he might be writing, he might be even more specific. He might be writing names of people they've sinned against, demonstrating how he not only knows about their sins, but he knows the specifics of their lives. You know, if one of them had been involved in adultery, maybe he's writing that woman's name. If one of them had uh, dishonored their parents, maybe he's writing mom and dad's name. You, You can go a long way with that. But this is just speculation. The third thing that I think he might have written, he might have been writing this. He might have just simply been writing, he who is without sin among you, they persist and want an answer, so he stands up and says it, and then he goes back and finishes writing the rest of it. 
The fourth thing that he might have been writing is he might have been writing some truths about himself. Think of the seven I am's that are in the book of John. Maybe he's writing that. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth. Oh, brain walked away. The way and the life. <laughs> the way, the truth, and the life. You know, maybe he's writing that. But that's all speculation. We don't know what he wrote. But we do know that it was in front of everybody. And we do know that they're watching. And we do know that coupled with what he says... And really, I don't want to give too much credence to the writing. Scripture says when they heard what he said. So the emphasis is on this part in red. When they heard what he said, then they started leaving the oldest first. So now when we look at what he said, he is without sin among you. Let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Um, only the one without sin is justified in condemning. And there's a lesson here for us to chew on. I can't make that lesson for you. I'm suggesting that this is worth chewing on. Uh, We need to be careful just because we know what the Bible says about right and wrong. I mean, with the Holy Spirit in us and the wealth of what we have in the New Testament added to the Old Testament, you guys should know a lot about right and wrong. We really should. And we should know how God doesn't like sin. Hates it so much that death is the penalty. But we got to be careful about crossing a line into a mode of condemning someone. I'll come back to this a little bit later. But here's the point. Only the one without sin is justified in condemning. And so they walk away one by one. The only one who is without sin in this passage, is Jesus. He's the only one who could throw the first stone. Now, he didn't say that the rest of them had to be without sin after the first stone. They could have joined in if he started it. But none of them qualified. So, in a masterful way, he cuts through the trap. Because he's agreeing with the law. What she's done... So, I don't... We should not minimize sin from this passage. What she's done is worthy of condemnation. And we could stick that in ourselves into that for any of the other sins. A sin... Sin is so serious, no matter what type of sin it is, that death is the consequence. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, um, 23 says. So he's not minimizing that, but he's also disarming or disabling them from being the ones who trigger the condemnation. We didn't get to it in Sunday school today, um, but in that passage we were talking about in Colossians 2, I'm going to turn over there real quick. Um, That last verse that we... We talked briefly about it, but we didn't, we didn't really get into it much. But two verse, Colossians 2, verse 15, it's talking about Christ and what he's accomplished through his crucifixion. And 2.15 says, when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. That word disarmed, the picture here is heavenly ruler and authorities, rulers and authorities that are below God. Um, And he's disarmed them. That Greek word means to disinvest oneself from something. So disinvest immediately makes me think financial. If you're a shareholder in a company or a co-owner and you were to disinvest, you totally remove yourself from it by selling your shares back to the company or by working out something with the other partners where they buy you out. Once you have disinvested yourself from an entity... You now no longer have any financial considerations. And from a financial viewpoint, it means you no longer have any, any um, skin in the game. In a legal setting, the same thing can be true. If you've disinvested from something, you no longer are a party in that legal affair. 
That sometimes happens in lawsuits that bubble up to the Supreme Court or to various courts where there may be a lawsuit against several people. And they will file various briefs trying to get dropped out of the lawsuit. And sometimes a judge at some point or even the Supreme Court will rule that there's no grounds for this person being part of that suit. You, the plaintiff, can't sue that person. And you get dropped out of it. Well, once that happens, you're disinvested from that case legally. You're not involved anymore. And so I think, it's not up here, it's Colossians 2.15. When he disarms those rulers and authorities or principalities and authorities, I think it's in a legal sense. They no longer have the right to be bringing a charge against God's chosen people, the ones that Christ has saved. Uh, Think of Satan as the accuser. You know, in fairness to some extent to Satan, he's like in a role of holding God accountable. This guy has sinned. He's broken your law. He's a rebel. He deserves condemnation. That's a role that Satan might fill. But when Jesus dies on the cross, the penalty's paid. He rises from the dead. Paul is saying in Colossians 2.15, he's disarmed those prosecuting attorneys in heaven. They're disarmed. They're divested from the case. They have no standing before the judge. That's cool. That's what's happened here. And not in the Greek word. That Greek word's not here. That's over in Colossians 2.15. But that's what Jesus has effectively done. The one without sin can cast the first stone. All of you with sin, you're suddenly divested from this legal framework. You have no standing. Go away. And they do go away. They realize it. That's cool. All right. So he says to the woman, woman, where are those accusers of yours? This, by the way, is another of the cata words um, emphasizing the aggressiveness of the accuser. Uh, Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Condemned is another cata word. I'll get to that one in a minute. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. I said earlier, Jesus is not justifying the sin. Sin is serious. And here we see the bookend to that where he says, go and sin no more. That's important. He's not forgiving her so she can go sin at will. He's forgiving her so she can live a different life. So Jesus chose to forgive her. It's worth us thinking about how we deal with people who sin against us. Because we always have the choice to forgive or not. And boy, it is really hard to forgive if the person's never repentant. But there are situations where even when the person's not repentant, you have a choice to forgive and let go. It's between them and God. I'm not saying that the sin has gone away. It's between them and God. But you have a choice. Jesus chose to forgive her here and then told her, go and sin no more. And this is worth us thinking about, too, because everybody in this room has been forgiven. Now, I don't know if everybody in this room, so I I may have misspoke. Everybody in here who is a child of God, where you've put your faith in Christ, you have been forgiven. If you haven't done that, you may not have been forgiven yet by God. You have probably experienced forgiveness by other people, like parents or friends. But when you are forgiven, do you go and keep sinning because I got away with it? Do you go and keep sinning because Jesus will keep forgiving me? This woman is in that situation, facing both of those, and that's real for us, too. She could leave. And think, well, yeah, the Pharisees failed. Nobody's going to ever come after me again on this. I can just commit adultery all I want. She could have that attitude. But Jesus says, go and sin no more. So this, this application spinning out of this for us, too. All right. So I want to I do a note on judging versus condemning before I wrap up. Um, so that's the verse that we were just talking about. Condemn shows up twice. And this is the fourth of those words. The other two words, one was that accuser that I mentioned. 
And the third, the third one was in verse 9. In my version, it says, they began to go out one by one, beginning with older ones, and he was left alone. That left alone is a, is a Greek word, katalepo, which means to leave behind, to abandon, to forsake. That has kata in it. But this one here is the fourth one, katakrino. And it means to judge against as in passing sentence. This is a heightened form of judge. Okay, and I'm going to go ahead and get the get crino up here. Crino is the base word, and it means to distinguish properly, to conclude, to, to make a determination. That could be to approve or disprove something. It could be to esteem, to separate, to pronounce an opinion on right or wrong. That's what judge means. It's kind of a neutral term. Crino is a neutral term, and it would be equivalent in English to judge if you think of judging as this first thing, to distinguish properly. But I, actually, it works really great to put this first part with this last part. To distinguish properly in an opinion on right and wrong. That's neutral. Because it doesn't carry with it the punishment. But when you put kata in front of it, it's now an aggressive against sort of form of the base word... And thus means to judge in the sense of passing a sentence, condemn, if you put it in one word, condemn. It occurs, uh, Catacrino, 18 times in the New Testament, and uh, all 18 times it's translated as condemn in every translation that I looked up. I looked at the New King James, I looked at a couple of others. Um, always translated as condemned. Crino occurs a whole bunch of times. And there's a little bit of overlap. It gets translated a few times as condemn in English. My hunch is if we went and looked at those, they didn't necessarily need to translate it as condemn. But there's, there's a little bit of overlap there. But most of the time, uh, judge is in a more, crino is a more neutral kind of situation. And so I want to show you a few verses. The one that you, most people know of, Matthew 7 Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you used, it will be measured back to you. All of these are crino. Judge, judge, judgment, judge, and judge. Five times. Now, he goes on to talk about the log in your own eye, the speck in your neighbor's eye. And he ends up saying just a few verses after this. He doesn't say, forget the speck in your neighbor's eye, but remove the log from your own eye then you can help your neighbor get the speck out of his own eye. So even though Jesus doesn't say it, it's oozing between the words of what he says that you're going to have to make judgments in the crino sense, distinguish properly to know I got a log in my eye. Boy, that puppy's big. That's a log, not a speck. And, and he, she's got a speck in her eye. You know, that's crino to distinguish properly. Um, John seven twenty four from uh, Bob teaching last week. Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That's crino through there. And Jesus is not saying don't judge, but he's saying judge with righteous judgment. In other words, distinguish properly as God would distinguish between right and wrong or whatever the situation is. So that's crino. Um, distinguish properly with righteous discernment. Uh, this, these are verses where crino and catacrino are together. Romans 2.1, Therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, that's crino, for in whatever you judge, crino, in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself, that's catacrino, for you who judge practice the same thing. So the idea here is when you are pronouncing a judgment, deciding distinguishing properly or attempting to about someone else, but you're guilty of the same thing, then in a stronger form, you've condemned yourself, even though you didn't intend to do that. Um, this is one of the, the ones I really like, 1 Corinthians eleven thirty-two. But when we are judged, this is really talking about the Lord judging us. And it's not actually talking about final judgment type stuff. It's talking about in your life today, when the Lord judges something in your life, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. This one's catacrino. 
And the idea here is that God, in loving us, you see the same thing in Hebrews 12 with the Lord's discipline. In loving us, he rightly distinguishes what's good and bad in your life, chastens us to spare us from condemnation. You could think so that the problem he's putting his finger on doesn't get worse. So that it gets removed from your life so you experience abundant life. You know? So, uh, catacrino, that's our word here. So, a proper determination with the Lord's chastening protects us from condemnation. So, uh, key takeaway, and here's where I'm ending. We were in John 5 back uh, in May. And there's some verses. So here I'm taking a big picture look at how John 8 fits in and what Jesus has just done here with this woman. In John 5, he's had a string of verses where he first says, 521, As the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. So number one, the Son gives life. Just as the Father gives life, the Son gives life. Then in verse 22, he says, For the Father judges no one. Did you know that? So Jesus said, the father judges no one, but has committed all judgment to the son, that all should honor the son just as they honor the father. We talked about this back when in this message. Um, but the point there is that the son executes judgment. Then we get to the wonderful verse 24. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment. That's Crino, by the way, but has passed from death into life. So the son gives us life. The son gives life. The son executes judgment and the son gives us a way to bypass judgment. Then on the other side of 24, we have the same principles being driven home more. 25, most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the son of God. In between the words there, resurrection happens. And those who hear will live. The Son gives life. Verse 26 and 7. The Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Judgment is going to be done by Jesus. When we think Matthew 25, he says explicitly there that the Son of Man is the king who's sitting in judgment separating the sheep and the goats. And as, as I said when, when, we were do, when we were in John 5, uh, I believe that the Revelation 20 great white throne judgment, that's Jesus who's sitting as judge. Um, so now let's go to the other side in John's gospel. Those were from chapter 5 before we got to chapter 8. Three chapters later, later in chapter 12, Jesus says, I have come as light into the world that whoever believes in me should not abide in darkness. And then the next verse, he says, if anyone hears my word and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So here's how this is fitting together. Jesus didn't come to judge, but to give life the first time that he came. He will judge one day. And you can read about it in those passages. But he wasn't here in hu- as a human being in the accounts we read in the Gospels. He, was, he didn't come to judge. He certainly didn't come to condemn. He came to give life. That people could be in relationship with the Lord. Could be forgiven of their sin. And so that's what you see him doing here. They want him to judge and condemn. And he does, in a sense, crino. He distinguishes properly and says, the one without sin can cast the first stone. She deserves to be stoned. But he doesn't condemn because he's the only one who meets the requirement. And he chooses not to fling a stone. He forgives. Um, So when we go back to this key verse for John 8, 1 through 11, it's the last verse. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We see a picture here of our Lord um, in his mercy, compassion, and grace. Extending all of those to this woman and forgiving her. And when you think about it, 
I, for Jesus to do this, he knows that a year to a year and a half from now, he's going to die on a cross so that this is legal, what he just did. He, when he says, go and sin no more, he says, when he says, neither do I condemn you, baked into that is the knowledge that he's going to die on the cross to allow him to have not condemned her. And the same is true for every one of us for the sins that we've committed. Okay, so to wrap up, a few questions here just to give you something. Maybe one of them will resonate, something to talk to the Lord about this week. Do you pass judgment on people in a condemning fashion? Um, A few examples might be so condemn, you'll have to, based on all of what I told you about what the word meant, you'll have to fill, fill in with the Holy Spirit guiding you what that might look like in your life. My proposition to you is that sometimes we may cross a line between telling someone about some behavior being wrong and actually condemning them. And so we need to be careful about that. If, if you lie, do you condemn those who steal? If you dishonor parents, and yet, do you condemn those who take the Lord's name in vain? Do you lust in your heart to bring Matthew 5 into this, yet condemn homosexuals? Things like that, where we're picking what we think is especially bad, but we have stuff that we don't think is so bad because <laughs> we're doing it. But in God's eyes, still bad. So there's some self-inspection, self, what would that be? Introspection to maybe do here. Just to make sure, because we don't, if Jesus didn't condemn, we don't want to condemn. We want to offer to people the words of life. And that may well include distinguishing properly And letting them know that something in their life is bad. And it's going to lead to standing before the judge. But we're not the judge. We're not the one that condemns. Um, Do you forgive others as Jesus forgives you? Verses in Ephesians and Colossians speak of this. Think about if you're a child of God, if you've been forgiven... If you know how wonderful that is, think of how Jesus has forgiven you. Did he haul you off into a room and, you know, spend 24 hours just nailing you over and over again with all the things you did wrong? Or was it in a much more gracious way? And whatever way that God, did Jesus has forgiven you as a child of God sitting here right now, that's probably how we need to be forgiving others in our lives. Um, and then do you go and sin no more? Jesus' forgiveness of us is not a license to just go live for yourself. Every sin we commit, he died for. And you misunderstand God's love and his grace towards you If you take a view of, well, he did die to pay for all my sins, so my sins don't matter. I can do what I want. That is a misunderstanding of what it means for him to be your Savior and Lord. There's no heart desire to want to live in obedience to him. If that's characteristic of you, not a heart desire to do what you know is clearly his will then you need to really examine, am I his child? But if you have that heart desire, then you this resonates. You don't want to sin. You, you're forgiven and enjoy. You want to go and not do that thing anymore. You still may stumble, but you're going to quickly repent. And you're not looking to sin. You're not looking to practice whatever has been in the past your particular evil thing. 
And then last, is there a need to change the way you think? Because it's in how you think that then leads to how you act. Let me pray to close us and uh, we'll sing a song and be done. Lord Jesus, I praise you because you are the merciful, compassionate, forgiving, and gracious Savior. You are the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for sending your Holy Spirit in my life to convict me of sin and of righteousness and of judgment so that I knew that I needed a Savior. And Lord, on behalf of the others here, I thank you for doing it in their lives too. Father, help us to grow in our love for your word as that manifests a growing love for you. And help us, Lord, to extend to others the grace that you extend to us. And I ask this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Justin, come lead us in a song.